Well, we start again this new September season, and we have had the pattern over the last eight years to remember why it is that we focus on the gospel, community, hospitality, and evangelism at CTK. And this week, I want to do it, or this month, I want to do it through these two great commandments. These commandments that Jesus proclaimed to the Pharisee, the lawyer who asked him, what's the great commandment? And he picked out these two great commandments, one from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then he picked the other one out of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And my question for us as we enter into this new season is how does our focus on gospel, community, hospitality, and evangelism help us individually and corporately as a church to obey God? Now, again, you might ask yourself, what does this God want in obedience? Maybe you're new to the church and you wonder, what does God want? What does God command? Well, that's what Jesus just answered the lawyer, right? The lawyer who said, what's the greatest command? And Jesus gave him two and said, on these two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. Those of us who went to seminary were taught that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And on all of those laws, they can be hung here. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love? Maybe you say today, maybe I'm not so far from being a Christian. I love the idea that God is love. I like the idea that we're supposed to love. What do you think love means? I've found myself lately reading from the website Medium. I don't know if you've seen it. It's one of those websites that populates popular articles all over the internet, and it's pretty encouraging sometimes. Sometimes it's pretty discouraging, but it always seems to me to be insightful. I read an article this week about this definition of love. And this one writer said, this is what love ought to be for us in today's day and age. Love ought to be understood as the unconditional relish and delight in the things I choose to define my world. This unconditional relish and delight in the things that I choose to define my world. That's what it means for me to love. And notice there how one's desire and one's experience is central to this definition of love. Self-centered, we could even say. And from that, it seems logical to me that you would follow and say to love others would be to emotionally respond to others in such a way that it validates their choices and their actions. Write a modern definition of love. To unconditionally relish and delight in the things that I choose to define my world. And under that definition, to love you would be exactly that, an emotional response toward you that would validate your choices and your actions according to your will. How different that is from this first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This 
is where we as humans come into a place of contrast, of challenge, of contemplation. An honest assessment of any of our hearts with regard to this great commandment either starts on one end with not caring. In fact, maybe you're here today and you go, why would I care about what God wants? I'm much more excited in relishing unconditionally those things by which I define my world. And then on the other end of that spectrum, this reality, when we hear loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our minds, that we have a long way to go. Loving God totally with everything that we have. It is in many ways, easier to dismiss this commandment, isn't it? It's easier to dismiss it outright and just say, I'm going to love the way I want to love. I'll define it the way I want to define it. The problem with Scripture, with the Bible, if you come to it and pay any attention to it, allow it to interpret your life and my life, is that God says that human beings are created in His image responsible to love Him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. That it is our responsibility. And the question again that's before us is how does the gospel help us to obey God? How does it help us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind? How does this work? And I want to say this as an answer. The gospel transforms us by showing us God's way and by knowing Him through Christ. It changes us. We are different when we come face to face with it. And thus the passage that I read to you in Corinthians, and I want you to turn to it now on page 965 of those Bibles. We start in verse 7 because it only makes sense to start there, even though it's a little bit challenging. And I want you to see the logic of it with me very quickly. Let's look at it. The Apostle Paul is picking out an episode from the Old Testament, Exodus 34 actually. And he is saying, if the ministry of death, which is carved in stone, and maybe you're not very familiar with church, but you do remember that the Ten Commandments was carved in stone, but it probably shocks you that the Apostle Paul calls it the ministry of death. Now, if the ministry of death, which is carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, in other words... When Moses came off the mountain a second time with the second copy of the Ten Commandments, his face shone so brightly that the Israelites said, we are terrified, we're scared, cover your face, please. And so Moses spoke to them and then he covered his face. We go on to read that every time that Moses would stand before God in the tent of meeting, he would unveil his face and he was before God. But when he went to the Israelites, he would cover his face again, veiled because of the fear of the Israelites, their desire for that separation. And here we see 
that the Apostle Paul picks up that idea and says if this ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, this ministry of death being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? He's asking us to contrast how we understand the glory that Moses experienced and the parallel of the glory of the Spirit in a ministry that is going to be forever. Listen to what he says in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, again, an amazing reality, the giving of the law, the, the law on which Jesus was able to say could be shortened, could be understood in these two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If the ministry of condemnation... Excuse me, verse 9 says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. Again, the comparison, right? Between the glory that was known when the law was given versus this ministry of the Spirit, also here called the ministry of righteousness and the magnitude of its glory. In this case... Paul says, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Now you can imagine I could turn on a very bright light and if I put that bright light in front of your eyes and put the sun behind it, you wouldn't even recognize my bright light. As bright as it was, as clear as it was, as much as it defined reality, the sun is that much brighter. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Indeed, in this case... What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, or came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He is saying that this ministry of condemnation that came with the giving of the law is being brought to an end as opposed to the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness, which has an eternal glory. And then he says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now again here it references the story that when Moses came off the mountain and spoke to the Israelites, that they said, your face is so bright, it's shining. We can't handle it, we're afraid. Separate us with that veil. And so Moses did that. But the Apostle Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are bold and we're not going to do that. But their minds were hardened, the Apostle Paul says, of the Israelites. Suddenly the veil that caused fear or that, that assuaged their fear and allowed that separation allowed their hearts to become hardened. The veil that was now over their hearts to, to not understand the glory to which the law pointed. Here it says, but their minds were hardened to, for to this day. When they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away, is the veil lifted. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But verse 16 says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed 
Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Moses, or the Apostle Paul, is using this image of Moses from Exodus 34 and his face shining and saying that the Christian experience is parallel to that experience, to the experience of Moses. What was Moses' experience then? I want to encourage you to go back and read Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Because in Exodus 33, we understand that Moses, who was called to lead God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, was called to lead a very sinful group of people. Moses saw this firsthand because when he was on the mountain with the Lord, the Lord said, you know, the people that I've called have already turned from me. You've been up here for 40 days and they've already created a golden calf and they've already started worshiping that calf. They've offered burnt offerings and and peace offerings to them. They have eaten their meal in front of the calf and now they are partying like nobody's business. The description of that party would be rated R to explain it to you. And Moses comes off the mountain and he finds that it's true. Moses has the same anger that God has toward this sin. Moses goes back up to God and says, the people that you led out of Egypt, God had said to Moses, these are the people that you led out of Egypt. And Moses goes, no, these are the people that you led out of Egypt with your mighty axe and your powerful hand. And Moses says, listen, at one point, because you haven't even told me who you're going to send with me. Moses, who is overwhelmed by the reality of the human heart, even the people whom God has chosen, says this in Exodus 34, 13. Excuse me, 33, 13. He says, if I have found favor in your sight to the Lord, show me your ways that I might know you in order to find favor. That's what Moses says to the Lord. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I might know you and that I might find favor in your sight. And here's the amazing thing that God did. This is what God did for Moses. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The first explanation of worship that we've seen with Moses 
in this conversation with the Lord. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the people go in the midst of us. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses said, if I've found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I might know you, that I might find favor in your sight. It's an amazing reality. Moses realizes in the midst of the Israelites' sin, his own sinfulness. He professes it here. Forgive us our iniquity. Pardon our sin. And Moses says, the thing that I need is to see you. And when he asks for that, he says, also, when I ask this, consider the magnitude of this for your people. And so Moses sees God. God defines himself. He defines himself by his name. And Moses is changed. He's transformed. Moses, his face is glowing. And when Moses came down, the Israelites feared him. And they wanted the separation from that fear. And this veil came over Moses' face that separated them. And that veil ultimately came over their hearts to harden their hearts. But the Christian experience says that when we turn to the Lord, when we turn to the gospel, when we turn to the one who personifies the very radiance of the Father, when we turn to him, we are transformed. Listen again to how it's said in Corinthians The Apostle Paul says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The misunderstanding, the the unbelief, the hardness of heart is removed because we see in the gospel both the justice and the mercy of God completely fulfilled in unison because of his love for us. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, he writes. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. As we gaze upon this event the church calls the gospel, we are set free. Our hearts that are centered on ourselves and that demand to love that which satisfies us are set free as we behold the glory of the Lord. And it says that as we behold him in this last verse, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Christian experience is parallel to Moses's. What do we need for our hearts to change? For us to be transformed. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind. 
We need the gospel. We need to see that in the cross of Christ, mercy and justice are satisfied. And that we are set free and transformed to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. Because as the Apostle Paul says in another place, the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What would this look like for you and me? Two things. First, we would find gospel identity. We would find our identity so rooted in God's love for us that nothing else in our lives would steal that peace from us, would steal that identity. What is it that makes you so anxious? Where do you find the inability to settle? Where have you even said, I'm kind of tired of living? I don't even know who I am. This is gospel identity offered to you and me. Charles Wesley knew what it was. Charles Wesley was a minister. He was from London, but he had traveled to Georgia in the South when the United States was very young. And he had tried to proclaim the truth of the Bible, and he found no one who would listen. And he was going back, and he met this Moravian minister. And he asked Charles, he goes, Charles, do you hope to be saved one day? And Charles Wesley says, yes, I do. And he says, what is your hope based on? And Charles Wesley goes, well, I have done the best I could do with what God has given me. And the Moravian minister said, I hope that is not what your hope is based on. And that started Charles Wesley down this path of wondering, what is my hope based on then? What is more sure? And he read Luther's Galatians. And he sat in this picture of Galatians 2.20. My Savior who loves me. My Savior who loves me. My Savior who loves me. And he said in the struggle of that moment, over the course of hours, he began to experience a warming in his heart that overcame him. And suddenly a confidence that God loved him. That he sent his only son for him. And Wesley's response was to write, and can it be? The song that you just sang. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him shame. For me through him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, would die for me. This gospel identity. Listen, if you have said you have put your faith and trust in Christ, but you do not have gospel identity, peace in who you are because of Jesus, go before him and ask him for that. Because it is before God when you see his justice and his holiness and his demand for perfection. 
And then you see his provision of Christ for you that we will together begin to experience the identity as daughters and sons dearly loved by the king. If you are riddled with insecurity, unable to rest, if you find no hope in the gospel and you say, I believe it, but it doesn't bring me any joy, ask God to show you himself in all of his holiness and glory. And then ask him to show you Jesus. And the last thing is gospel purpose. When we experience this gospel awakening, we realize that God enables us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our minds. And we go, that's what I want to do. And instead of using the gifts and the talents that you have given me to find some other degree of security in some other place in my life, I want you to use my life, all of it, for your glory and for your purposes that your name would be made known. This is an amazing thing. Students, I want you to know that every adult here began to struggle with this in junior high. We began to ask ourselves, what is our identity? And you may be here asking yourselves, what is my identity? How come I have no peace? Ask God to give you his spirit, to pour his love out into your heart that you would know your identity in him. And this struggle for purpose How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything that he has given us? Freeze you to use your talents for his glory. You want to know where I saw this happen? Maybe one of the first times was in a seventh grader. A seventh grader. I was a youth pastor, and this kid had just moved into town. His folks had separated. It looked like there was going to be a divorce. And I met this child at his house, and this child had an unbelievable gift for playing music. Absolutely phenomenal. So much so that we were in Nashville, Tennessee, and some of the most famous musicians were there. And one of them had just written a song, a Christian song, that this kid had heard on the radio. We didn't have the internet, and we didn't have the opportunity to go download chords and music into practice he had just listened to the radio and he had taught himself the song he was so gifted and I went and met with him and I said do you want to meet that guy and he said you know him I said yeah actually youth group is at his house tonight do you want to come and and see him he goes yes I said well bring your guitar come and bring your guitar your talent and, and play with him and so we sat outside in their house, kids surrounding the pool. And this famous musician struck up his guitar and played this song that the kids had only heard on the radio and they were amazed. And all of a sudden, he realized that this other boy was right next to him, matching him chord for chord and strum for strum and note for note and word for word. And he stopped playing. And he listened to him play. And do you want to know what happened to my friend? Instead of my friend, this seventh grader going, look at me. I can play with him. I know now what defines me. 
Instead, this junior high boy was overcome by the love of God for him. So much so that he never once looked to find his identity in his gifts. But from that moment on, and I've known him now for nearly 20 years, he has asked the question, how do I use my gifts for his glory? Because I want to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my mind. Children, the struggle that you have in identity and purpose is only going to be answered in the gospel. And every adult in this room can verify that to you. How does the gospel help us to obey God? Because seeing his love for us in the gospel, it sets us free in this very first commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our minds. Come and pray with me.